Welcome to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with fraud experts Skip Myers and Chad Evans. This is your guide to fighting fraud and chargebacks. Learn the best fraud prevention solutions and strategies. How to enhance your fraud prevention team. And how to prosecute criminals. Now, here are your hosts, Skip Myers and Chad Evans. Hey everybody, today we're talking about joining the movement, the movement to ruin a bad guy's day. How to investigate fraud and prosecute online criminals. Hey, I'm Skip Myers. Hey, and I'm Chad Evans. Together, we have over 40 years of fraud prevention investigative experience. And today, we want to help you ruin a bad guy's day. So Chad, hey, we've been to a lot of security conferences over the years. And what's interesting that every time we go, when we talk to our friends and our colleagues, the overwhelming response to our question of whether or not people want to prosecute fraudsters is yes. Everybody wants to do it, but a lot of people just don't know how and what to do when it comes to investigating and prosecuting fraudsters. Is, is that what you see even today? Yeah, I mean, I agree. The uh, The first time I was present when you asked that question, I was I was uh, shocked, honestly, to see the number of people in the room that, that didn't pursue um, law enforcement involvement with fraudsters they identify in their, within their organizations. But then the overwhelming response to your follow-up question, which was how many of you want to, essentially the entire room raised their hands. I, even even after leaving that conference and speaking with colleagues, I still think that they, they see this as a unreachable goal or expectation or just a hurdle that they can't climb. So I think what, what we're here to do today is to help our colleagues in the battle on the, on the fraud prevention front, realize that they can prosecute these these individuals. Right, and it, what what's interesting is that so many people just don't know how to take their investigation, that, that fraud investigation, all that hard work that they put into it, and understand how they should put all that information, all that evidence together and present it to law enforcement for prosecution. And if they can do that, and if we can help them do that, man, it's time to really fight back. We can really take it to the bad guys. And I, you know, both of us believe, you know, the answer to fighting fraud starts with turning the tables on the bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, we talk about it all the time that not only is it going to be helpful for each individual's organization, but it sends a message, I think, across the greater um, criminal enterprise that operate in this space that that, that, uh, retailers just aren't going to put up with it anymore. Um, that we are going to fight back and that identity theft and credit card fraud is not going to be as easy as it was in the past. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting is that so many of our colleagues, you know, some of the best fraud analysts and fraud prevention directors, they've already done the work. They've already done the investigation. They have all the skills that they need to begin the process to prosecute fraudsters. And so often we get hung up in speculating that they, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources to prosecute fraudsters. But it's time to stop thinking that. It's time to begin believing that law enforcement is really our friend and that law enforcement may be extremely interested in your fraud case. Absolutely. And I think what what happens is, is that people don't realize that you're never going to know how successful you're going to be unless you try. Or maybe there's a few organizations out there that have tried and they haven't had success early on. So, you know, they shut down, they shut down the program. Um, one thing that that uh, fraud fighters have to keep in mind is, is that you never want to stop. You always want to present that case. You never know what agency is going to take it. Be persistent. If, it, if the state doesn't want to take it, maybe the city will. If the city doesn't want to take it, maybe the federal government will. So 
I think part of what you and I are going to try to do, uh, Skip, is to just to help maybe even through some of our own personal experiences um, show that you can be successful even even coming out of maybe early on failures of those people that did try to prosecute fraudsters that maybe um, didn't get the response they'd like from law enforcement. Exactly. And, and what's so important, and, and, and I remember this long ago, is that, you know, your one case could always be that turning point, that one extra piece of information that helps solve a huge criminal investigation that local police are, are currently investigating because all that fraud data that you have at your expo- exposure tells a story. And, you know, we believe it's a digital crime story and it's filled with all kinds of virtual evidence, virtual evidence that's used by an investigator to help prosecute a fraudster. And a lot of times that virtual evidence that we collect on our end, you know, we have to help educate law enforcement to understand what that virtual evidence means and how it can be used to prosecute a fraudster. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the presentation of that evidence and coming from the background that you came from, you probably could speak to this better than the most of us in this industry, but the presentation of those facts, the same way that a detective at a local law enforcement agency would look at any other type of case, whether it's a property crime or a homicide, um, presenting those facts in the same type of investigative manner really paints a picture for them that, hey, this is a prosecutable case. This individual that I'm working with in the retail space knows his world. And the facts he's presenting to me and the way he's presenting them to me uh, make this a very easy case to prosecute. Exactly. You know, and, and that that falls right into what we're talking about. I mean, it's, it's just time to take that fraud data that's that's out there, the overwhelming information that's left behind by the fraudster and use it against them. Everyone out there today that's listening, you know, there's some simple steps that you can take right now to assist you with communicating your fraud investigation to law enforcement for cur- criminal prosecution. But first, you have to want to do it and you, you can't be afraid of contacting law enforcement. So many times our only interaction with law enforcement is what we see in the rearview mirror. It's not like that anymore. Law enforcement wants you to call them. Law enforcement wants you to give them that information. They're working cases today, right now, that you don't know about, but can help be solved by that one piece of information that you give to them. So today, Chad and I are really going to go over some really easy details on how to prosecute these e-com fraudsters. So, Chad, would you like to kind of start out with that? Sure. So, um, I think I think the the first step in kind of understanding the the presentation of law enforcement um, is kind of referencing back to what you said about the digital crime scene. Is how do you build that case using that data within your organization uh, to build a comprehensive case file that's not only um, easily understood but also essentially does the work for law enforcement for them. So all they have to do is take your information, um, hopefully you've identified the suspect as well, and go catch the bad guy. So uh, the digital crime scene, as Skip mentioned, really references the five steps, the five steps to build a case. So the first step of building a case is to show law enforcement that you are the victim of a crime. Now, this may sound kind of abstract or maybe a little gray, but believe it or not, either yourself or your finance organization has that information at their fingertips in the form of either 
chargeback data or proven fraud alerts from uh, card issuers or banks. So I'd say that's probably the first thing in building this case to present to law enforcement is to make sure you show show those agencies that you are the victim of a financial loss. And that, that's exactly right. And, and when I was a financial crimes investigator, I had to prove to the district attorney that a crime was actually committed or there was criminal intent to deprive a certain company of merchandise or property or goods or services. So that means that I had to prove that a fraudster, in this case, an online fraudster, was deliberate and knew what they were doing at the time of the criminal act. So for those for those of you who operate in organizations that um, have brick and mortar environments where in-store pickup or buy online pickup in store, click and collect, whatever phrase that your organization likes to use, that right there to prove criminal intent for those individuals that obtain merchandise in that in that fashion is fairly easy when you consider the video evidence you're going to have. They're coming into a store, they're picking up goods, uh, they might be presenting fake IDs to obtain those goods that have invoices on them that have cardholder information that does not match any of the information that they're presenting to obtain the goods, um, and then establishing that pattern of intent, say, throughout a, an individual market where they might be um, using cardholder information from all across the country but obtaining goods in a very concentrated market to show the abnormality from regular a legitimate customer behavior. So, uh, and as you mentioned, the victim piece, along with the criminal intent piece, those are you know the two cornerstones for for um, building that case. So, Skip, do you want to maybe want to go into kind of step number three of how to provide that evidence? You know, what's really important too is as criminal investigators want to ask you, you know, how do you know you're a victim of a crime? So it's incumbent upon us that we establish that we are actually the actual victim of a credit card fraud. And that is the victim's not the bank and the victim's not the cardholder. The investigator may ask you, you know, why are you the victim and not the bank or cardholder? Well, this is simple. It's all about that chargeback report or a pending chargeback that's forthcoming. That is that is information that shows that you're an actual victim. You don't have a financial loss. So that information is valid proof that you are a victim of a crime and not the bank and not the cardholder. It's not something that was an accident. It's not where uh, Johnny got mommy's credit card and he went online and downloaded a bunch of games. There was somebody who had criminal intent to deprive you of something. And you, your proof is, is that there's a financial loss, i.e. a chargeback or a pending chargeback. So that's one of the first steps. Once you establish that, that investigator is going to say, okay, I got me a real case. I want to, I want to hear more information. And what he wants to hear is what evidence you've collected that shows that the crime was committed. In this case, it's going to be virtual evidence. It's not going to be physical evidence, but that virtual evidence is so important to linking that fraudster to that fraudulent transaction. Absolutely. And, you know, all that kind of, all that kind of breeds into the, the presenting a case that's comprehensive and easily understood. The, the victim of a crime, the criminal intent, providing that digital evidence, the data that your organization already has. You don't have to go out. You don't have to hire anybody. You don't have to enlist the help of anybody, maybe other than some business partners and different business units in your organization. But that data is already in inside your internal organization's database. So the next question that always comes up is, well, who do I call? Where do I start? What's, what jurisdiction do I start with. I mean, you have a cardholder that's living in one state, but the goods were shipped to another state, but our corporate offices are even in a third state. That's a great so, question. Yeah. So, the, so Skip, maybe you can kind of go into 
how do you differentiate, you know, between those those anomalies when it comes to jurisdiction? And, and that this question comes up all the time. And this is probably the one question that prevents a lot of our counterparts from actually contacting local police to help them with their fraud investigation. When you ship physical goods to a location and you establish that a crime was committed, it was a stolen credit card, and this ship to location is a drop, it's the bad guy's drop location, it's an abandoned home, it may be uh, uh, it, it may be a storage facility, whatever it may be, but you've established that there's a pattern of behavior of fraudulent transactions where transa- these fraudulent transactions have the commonality of a, the same ship to address, then you research these either the zip code or the address and locate the local jurisdiction that is in charge of that area. So that that's the first place you start with. It's not where your company is based out of. Now, if it's a digital goods download fraud case, you would contact the local jurisdiction from which your corporate offices are located. But if you actually shipped out physical goods from Los Angeles, say to Atlanta, and an Atlanta address was found out to be a a a bogus address or associated to a fraudster based on credit card fraud, then you would contact the city of Atlanta or the jurisdiction near there with the corresponding zip code. Remember though, a lot of that information you got to be able to supply to that investigator starts with not just the physical location of where the goods were shipped to. Uh, Again, this is an extension of the digital crime scene, but understand that that investigator will want to know what elements of the offense that you're describing, all this virtual evidence, what is linked to the fraudster other other than the ship to address? And so that's going to help out identify whether or not that fraudster is linked to different virtual evidence uh, that came across on the transaction. And we're going to explain that a little bit more. It's going to help the, the investigator analyze the fraudster's behaviors or MO, uh, modus operandi. That helps us or as investigators understand what kind of pattern or method of operation is used by this particular fraudster. And it could really paint a bigger picture whether or not this is a, a lone wolf fraudster or is this part of a bigger criminal enterprise. So uh, Chad, you may want to kind of jump in and under and explain a little bit more about the elements of the offense and what different pieces of virtual evidence go into uh, understanding how this fraudster is operating. Sure. Um, before that, I kind of want to expand a little bit on the jurisdiction, the jurisdiction piece of the of the conversation here. I hear a lot of a lot of times too. Well, the goods were shipped across state lines. Isn't that something the FBI should handle? Or exactly, um, right. a cardholder, a cardholder called into my customer service and they're claiming identity theft in their particular state. So I think the charges, and as Skip mentioned, the specific the specific charges and the specific crimes committed while your organization is a victim is key to understanding why the jurisdiction is where those goods are received or where that fraud to obtain those goods. Now, oftentimes what will happen is, and I've ran into this, I'm not sure if you have either, Skip, is you, you will contact the local jurisdiction and they'll tell you, well, it's the county. Well, make sure you call the county and see if they have interest in taking the case. And if they don't, then you can call the state. There's been times that we work with state investigative units that have overlapping jurisdiction across county and city agencies that are more than willing to take the case, maybe because it's helping them solve a different crime, as Skip mentioned earlier, or maybe because they have a specific unit within that state agency, like a financial crimes unit or a cyber crime unit that has a particular interest in that in that case. Um, I will say there has been a couple of times where I've reached out to local agencies where they've came back and said, I need you to file a report with your local police department where your corporate offices are located 
and it's more of a paper trail thing. Don't let that discourage you. You just have to probably explain a little bit about what, who you are and what you're doing to your local agency. Um, and it's often called an agency assist where basically they're just validating who you are and that you're not a, um, you know, a bogus person filing a bogus report and that you actually do work for the organization you say you work for. And they'll forward that information along with a report number along to the local agency who will then can kind of check the box for what their process and procedure is before moving forward. So I don't know if you have anything to add on to that, Skip, about some of the stuff of the federal versus local and state. Oh, yeah, sure. Most people believe that they should call the federal government, and that's that's fine. And the, and the feds or the FBI have a great website. It's ic3.gov. It's the Internet Crime Complaint Center. What that does is it allows you to submit a complaint about your investigation. And it goes into file, and, and there's sometimes they will actually contact you, but other times they'll actually contact the local jurisdiction, again, from which the crime was committed or where the ship to address is that received the stolen goods. So that's a great place to start. Most times, the biggest cases begin at the local level. That's why Chad and I are really harping on contact that local jurisdiction from which the stolen goods were received. The FBI most times will take on a case once it reaches a certain uh, impactful level of monetary loss. So, and that occurs after a lot of investigation. And sometimes what we're, what we're really trying to do here by joining the movement and bringing more retailers and e-tailers together is that your case could be part of another larger case with another retailer. It may not, your case may not be subject to an FBI investigation or meets their specific criteria for loss. However, with in, in conjunction with another case with another retailer, boom, there you go. Now you got two large retailers with a financial loss maybe exceeding $100,000. FBI will most likely take that over. Also, uh, not excluding the FBI from other federal cases regarding high monetary losses, the United States Postal Service is a great place to start as well. So there's a lot of different law enforcement agencies at your disposal that are willing to help you assist and assist you with investigating this crime and prosecuting the fraudsters. Absolutely. And and kind of expanding onto that a little bit farther, if you contact a local law enforcement agency, they might have previous knowledge of this, either because there's other police reports associated with an individual or an address. And there's been often times where through those conversations, myself or my uh, or my colleagues have been informed, hey, I think something might be going on at another retailer. Reach out to the retailer. Reach out to that retailer's loss prevention or e-commerce fraud prevention program. See what their level of involvement is. They may not even be aware that they're um, having financial losses associated with the individual, and now they kind of want to to tack onto that case to continue to build that that monetary value and the number of victims increases and you kind of spider web that out to get all the possible retailers involved through maybe those tips from um, either local law enforcement or even investigative units that work for say UPS or FedEx. I've had experience where FedEx investigators, because they have um, a vested interest in shutting down addresses where someone might be claiming they don't receive goods or there's fraud associated with it. Um, where they'll say, hey, I think these, I think this individual is also making orders from um, retailers XYZ. 
and you can take the lead and kind of be the, the proactive individual that reaches out to those different retailers and say, hey, I think you might have an issue going on in this address. And they're going to take the time to research that address and come back to you and say, hey, yes, I have 10000 or 50000 or $5,000 in loss associated with this address. And then you guys can combine efforts to make an even more presentable case to law enforcement. So I would also leverage those uh, additional retailers and even at times FedEx, UPS, in addition to the U.S. Uh, Postal Service Postal Inspectors. Yeah, that's great information. You know, what's really great about this, too, is that our ability to educate law enforcement with the elements of the, the offense or the virtual evidence that was left behind by the fraudster and how you present that to law enforcement. And through the years, Chad and I have really identified five key elements of virtual evidence that that law enforcement can really use. And, and it really simplifies the entire case to, like we said, five elements. And we broke it down to device fingerprints and an email address, a telephone number, geolocation or IP address, and the payment type. And again, um, all that combined relates to a ship to address. So all this information is is huge for the investigation and the understanding of, of an investigator to, to wrap their head around really what, what they're up against because most investigators in a lot of smaller uh, jurisdictions may not truly understand what virtual evidence is or means as it relates to credit card fraud. So uh, a device fingerprint uh, as most of y'all know, is 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 really technology that a fraud solution provider can provide you and law enforcement really relating to what's the connected device that was used at the time of the fraud that was committed online. So, it, you know, that's great information. You, you're able to give that information to the investigator saying, hey, you know, I know the fraudster is using a tablet. Well, how do you know they're using a tablet? Well, my fraud solution has this uh, provider has this technology that shows whether or not the bad guy used a desktop to commit the fraud, a tablet, a smartphone, mobile device, or even a game console. That's really important in the in the investigation, you know, for the criminal investigator because they, it gives them a truer understanding about how the bad guy is operating. You know, there's a lot of times that I've been able to and Chad has been able to to parlay that information to law enforcement, especially with traveling criminals who may use your free Wi-Fi access in the parking lot of your physical location to commit fraud to do an in-store pickup. So that is powerful information. Uh, do you have uh, examples of that, Chad? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we personally, over over the years of working these particular cases, fraudsters often think that they can outsmart whatever tools you might have in place uh, within your organization. And I think that device fingerprint, um, the device fingerprinting technology, which is available through a lot of different um, either internal IT processes the organization might use or third-party vendors that you might employ for your fraud prevention solution to really key in on an individual that thinks that they can use burner phones or do a factory reset on their mobile device or um, you know, use a different tablet or internet cafe or, as Skip mentioned, try to even use your own Wi-Fi against you where they don't realize that even beyond the device fingerprinting, there could be other settings within that device that are defaulted settings that still identify that as a unique device to where you can see 10 or 15 different emails, a bunch of different phone numbers and names used, but they're all still tied back to the same individual device or that individual person or group. So, I mean, absolutely, I've seen fraudsters, while I've worked these cases, think that they can outsmart your systems or even use your own Wi-Fi against you. And all they're really doing is creating that mountain of digital evidence against themselves that gets presented uh, to law enforcement to prove that, hey, nope, it wasn't 
it's not 15 different individuals that hit this market. It's one individual who used 15 different email addresses. But as you can see, it's the same cell phone or the same iPad. Exactly. I, I love email addresses too, because the bad guys, what's the misconception is that so many people think, well, the bad guys going to use the actual victim's email address. Why would they ever do that? You know, they want, they want you to send them via email, the tracking information. So emails left behind by the fraudster can be used to build historical data and help you establish patterns or potential profiles of fraudsters. And so a lot of the bad guys will use, you know, I guess what we call burner email accounts, you know, through Gmail or AOL or Yahoo or mail.com. And remember too, uh, bad guys are less likely to use business domain email accounts. I mean, that's, that's more legit. Uh, not, not in every case, but if you suspect a case, I mean, uh, that's fraudulent, you know, is one great place to check out that email address is just Google the email address, see if that domain actually exists. Or if it does exist, you can go to who is domain tools and see how long that website has actually been in, uh, in existence. So email addresses are a vital piece of the investigation and a vital piece of information that's used by law enforcement agencies. Absolutely. And I think it also goes back to the criminal intent piece. I mean, the regular average Joe individual that's making purchases online is not going to create a new email address every time they submit an order. So showing the use of these burner emails or an established pattern of using um, new emails every time a purchase is made just shows more criminal intent because of the abnormality of that illegitimate purchasing behavior. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, email addresses sometimes are associated to not just that device or other evidence left behind, but it's actually a part of the five pieces of virtual evidence that Chad and I have identified that are really crucial to a criminal investigation. And it also includes a geolocation. You know, what's a geolocation? Well, geolocation is the identification or an estimation of, uh, of a real world geographical location of an object. In this case, it's the piece of electronics that the bad guy is using. It could be the tablet or mobile device or desktop that's connected to the internet. And that geolocation is so important. So if I'm looking at a criminal case, I may have a froster that's actually international. He's sitting in some sort of uh, building in, let's say, Southeast Asia, but he's committing fraud online uh, and making transactions on my website here in the United States uh, with a ship to location in Dallas, Texas. So that geolocation is very important, not just for the criminal investigation, but maybe perhaps later when you're analyzing your chargebacks and really understanding where your fraud's coming from. Do you really know if your fraud's coming from domestic locations or maybe it's international? This is very important to understand because that the internet and that computer geolocation, you know, that's determined through the IP address or internet protocol, MAC addresses sometimes, you know, those are embedded numbers with specific numbers that are identified through your fraud solution provider. And this information is great in understanding and linking virtual evidence to show a pattern behavior by that fraudster. It could be a one-time event, but oftentimes if it's international, it's, it's a much larger criminal enterprise. Yeah. And just be be cognizant of fraud fraudsters using you know services proxy services vpn services to attempt to mask that geolocation oftentimes especially the overseas fraudsters will use proxy servers or vpns or things like you know amazon amazon web services to appear to be domestic uh, domestically based fraud uh, or domestically based customers as, as opposed to overseas so 
you know, a lot of times that technology might be embedded within your fraud solution provider. Maybe you can work with your local IT team to see if they can pull um, logs off of your uh, website traffic or your purchase, you know, your checkout page traffic. See if they can identify any kind of anomalies with um, maybe an IP address being spoofed or pushed forward to a, an, a different location than the order was actually made. Absolutely. And those of you who do not have a fraud solution provider that's really overseeing your company website's transactions, a great website that I use sometimes is uh, geolocation.com. And again, that's geolocation.com. That helps you uh, input information into that website and it gives you a geolocation. It's a search tool that maps the location of that specific IP address. So that's really critical information that will help you outside of, of a fraud solution provider to help you with that, that investigator that's helping you with your case. For sure. And use Google to your advantage and use those free tools to your advantage. Um, another one that I like to use is IP2. So the letter I, the letter P, the number two, location.com. Um, you can actually sign up. Uh, I think Without signing up, you get 50 searches a day, and I believe if you do sign up, you get 200 searches a day, where you can search IP addresses, and it will actually tell you if it is a proxy server, if it is a VPN service, and it will also tell you the provider of that service. So farther along in your investigation, either working directly with those internet service providers or having your law enforcement contacts or your detective assigned to your case subpoena the records associated with that ISP, that information will be crucial. Because a lot of times these internet service providers or these virtual private network providers don't know this kind of activity associated with, with those fraudsters and the accounts they're using to, to sign up for that service that is criminal behavior. So they'll be more than willing to assist you with providing or assist law enforcement with providing uh, specifics around the account holder of those VPN or proxy service accounts. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other items in the five list of great virtual evidence pieces that we like to share with law enforcement is something that's very obvious is the payment type. You know, what, what payment information is being used by the fraudster to commit this crime? And what's really interesting is you're able to link a lot of information based on BIN numbers, you know, the bank identification number, you link those to different fraudulent transactions. I mean, so often BIN numbers coming in groups or series of maybe velocity transactions, you know, you have a specific criminal behavior occurring on your website. Whereas, you know, maybe there's been a breach. Maybe somebody on the dark web bought a group of stolen credit card numbers that had the same bin number. That information is really critical in, in really understanding how this fraudster is operating and whether or not this can help you identify, you know, if this is just a one-time occurrence or is this part of a bigger criminal enterprise. And again, these bin numbers are great in identifying fraudulent activity and reassessing, you know, your business rules on how you proceed with your manual review process analysis. So if you have a group of bin numbers that are coming through over and over again that are fraudulent, it's great to go ahead and establish your business rules within your fraud solution provider software to identify those specific suspicious bin numbers so that you can go in greater depth into manual review. So... So then the next question is now what? Um, you've, you've, you have your proof that you're a victim. You have your criminal intent. You've combed through your digital evidence. You've put together a comprehensive case file. You've identified those five digital elements that are probably the most crucial and key to presenting your case to law enforcement. So then the question becomes, you know, what next? Maybe you've made pre preliminary calls to agencies who are interested in taking your case um, and you've set up time either via phone or even in person 
um, to present that case file to law enforcement. So on the next episode of Ruin a Bad Guy's Day Radio, we're really going to dive into uh, case presentation, how you present those cases to law enforcement um, professionally and, and comprehensively to basically educate and convince those agencies that your case is important and your case is prosecutable. Great information. I hope everybody enjoyed one of our first episodes and hope you come back often and feel free to add our podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes account. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ruin a Bad Guys Day or Facebook at Ruin a Bad Guys Day. Thank you, everybody. And we look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast with Skip Myers and Chad Evans. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and colleagues. You can learn more about us at ruinabadguysday.com or visit us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruin a Bad Guy's Day. Join us for another episode of Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast. The information provided in Ruin a Bad Guy's Day radio podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. You should consult with legal counsel or other professionals to determine what may be best for your individual or organizational needs.